What is corporate social responsibility? We're talking with Sridhar Vembu, the co-founder and CEO of Zoho. Zoho is now 25 years in business, and we are one of the most unusual cloud software companies with a very broad and deep product portfolio and a worldwide customer base now approaching about half a million orgs, ranging in size, and with about 10,000 employees now, almost. So that gives you a snapshot. It's never raised money, profitable, private, and completed 25 years in business. You were bestowed the uh, very prestigious Padma Shri Award, which is the fourth highest civilian award in India. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Thank you. When we talk about corporate obligations and social responsibility, Sridhar, what, how does that ring for you? What, how do you react to that? What does that mean for you? First of all, I want to actually contest the notion, and, and this is a traditional notion in business circles, where in your day life as a business person, you are a ruthless profit maximizer. And then you harvest the profit and you act socially responsibly. There's a kind of dualism, a, a separation inherent in this. And I'm going to argue that we, we cannot act in the dualist way. We have to weave together our values and our business activities together and weave together in a tapestry. And that's what I've called spiritual capitalism or spiritual business. Because ultimately, the dualism comes back to hurt us in one way or another. So we got to be non-dualistic in our thinking. I'll ask you to elaborate on that because the term dualism is not something that we typically associate in any kind of business context at all. This goes to philosophy, really. Okay? This is not something that a business school would teach. But really, this is philosophy where you are... You are who you are and what your actions are have to be aligned. That's the idea of non-dualism. And if we don't, then what happens is eventually you have a kind of a dissonance. And you have the term cognitive dissonance that comes in and people are going to have burnout. People are going to get stressed out, all of that. All that results from it. If you look at our own 25-year history, the reason we are vibrant and still uh, active, vibrant, and feel young as a company, and is because we have actually woven together this, and it's non-dualistic. Our, our values and our actions are aligned, and that's important. That's, what, that's why I called it spiritual business or spiritual capitalism. So you're talking about the bringing together of the values and then the actions. What do yes. you so so then what do you mean by the values? What are the values and what are the kind of actions that you're referring to? We have always felt the notion of serving the unserved, underserved as very important part of our value system. And that is whether it's customers or employees, we want to serve the unserved. And when you think of that, and again, if you apply a a dualistic traditional thinking on this, well, in your business, you will hire the best people possible in terms of, you know, coming from the best credentials. And often those people are not done so. These people have already great opportunities. 
and then you maximize profit out of it and then you go take the money and maybe served and served in a separate way that's dualistic thinking but what we do in zoho instead is we have created uh, we have we have made creating skills extending opportunity or rather finding the the latent talent as a core part of our activity this comes from the observation that a lot of people have that latent talent but lack the opportunity because no one will take a chance on them no one will extend an opportunity to them and so we to be consistent with our values we have to extend that opportunity and that's where our zoho schools of learning or what used to be called zoho university comes in that's an example of weaving together our values along with our business activity business actions to what extent do do you at zoho practice this in terms of the you know you're a software development company and so where does this come in where does the expression of this philosophy of the non-dualism the bringing together of the the values and the activities we have products like zoho mail that compete with gmail and the temptation is to follow their business model so an ad supported business model right but we decided we are not going to go down that path because privacy is an extremely important value for us and if we profess a strong belief in that strong faith in privacy as part of our business model and then mixing advertising with it is going to cause conflict conflict within us and conflict for our customers so in the case of our our actions and our values would not be aligned so we decided early on and this was more than 15 years ago that we will not ever show ads we will not monetize our software using advertising as a business model and that is and this was not done with the calculus that this is going to be more profitable this was done with the idea that if we don't act this way we are going to hate ourselves at some point and we are going to get tired of doing this so we want to just stay true to ourselves so we will not use that business model and that it took us time to find a successful business model and and make it a success but today zoho mail is doing extremely well and we are happy to report but it took us you know a decade to do that but we were happy that we took that so this is this is an example of that values and actions align and we try to do this in every activity we do i guess the basic question that many people might have is there is a perceived cost associated with acting in a values driven manner. And so how do you think about balancing the approach of values against the costs of that or lower profitability which is really the same thing? There's two things here. First, no one in business even to do any good at all you have to be smart. and if we are we act very dumb we don't mind the we don't pay attention to the numbers we don't mind the store we are going to go out of business and we cannot do any good so to that extent it's very important to be a business that means a business that's able to pay its own way and make a profit that's important to do any good at all but the second aspect here which is if we are constantly thinking of ourselves as we are making a sacrifice to do this then again that 
there is a mental energy expended to keep thinking we are making a sacrifice and that's going to wear us down and our resolve will weaken so we actually don't believe for example when we said we will not do adopt advertising as a business model we did not think we are foregoing profit by doing this we instead thought this is what we believe in we will make this successful by acting on our beliefs we want to show the world that it is actually possible to do that so there was a positive energy positive reason for this for doing this rather than the the sort of the negative feeling of you know we are foregoing something we are missing out on something which will constantly you know eat us inside so that's why i always say don't make a sacrifice instead act in accordance with your true inner values you're the ceo of the company so you can make that decision but for people who work inside the organization and you're now a, a large company so for people who work inside the organization who are managing their budgets and so forth how do you guide them to follow this approach and yet still meet whatever their KPIs and metrics are that phrase KPIs and metrics that's where the action is right if i preach all this and practice ruthless KPIs and metrics it's going to be hypocritical so in reality i am not actually doing this KPIs and metrics driven management and in fact i i think we spoke about this and the, the tyranny of metrics there was a book i mentioned it's worth paying attention to that book because it's actually you know fundamental to the the what i'm talking about here but we are not ruthlessly metric driven in fact we believe human systems an extreme focus on metrics don't mix well so that's where the answer is and our managers and our employees know this so they know that obviously we have to make a profit otherwise we won't be in business long term but at the same time we are not going to be constantly driven by optimizing this metric or that metric they are going to holistically think about our values and our actions i'm smiling because how, okay how do you run your business then all i can assure you is that we are in business we are growing we are at 10000 people and and i am not actually doing these kpis and metrics like everybody is doing you know it's something that is very interesting and uh, it ultimately comes from empowering people so there is what 600 700 managers who manage our you know this is the the core middle management layer right and there is maybe about 50 or 60 senior managers right and if you look at that those people vast majority of them grew up in zoho so they got they have imbibed these values they have lived these values all along they know how this company operates and they know that as an example i'm never going to fire somebody because they missed a quarter okay that does never happen in our history well because you know we are private we can afford to miss quarters <laughs> but i would actually and this episode happened yesterday i'll give you an example there was some change a product made that upset some customers the customers felt some features were being taken away we were not doing that but some customer perception was that we immediately swung into action i called the power team and said let's put it back immediately the customers believe that there's something the product is being degraded in their experience let's put it back the way it was we did that immediately our team went and apologized to the customers who had the issue and and we took care of it 
And this is never going to be held against even the people who made the mistake. Because what I always stress is, it is human to make a mistake. The way we earn our customer trust is promptly fixing it and moving on. And never stand on ego. That's the principle. And that is again values and action. So that, that you know, the, so our people are not afraid to make mistakes. And all I say is that once we recognize we have made a mistake, let's just go fix it. Let's just get it right for the customer. We have a, a really interesting question from Twitter. Arsalan Khan, he's a regular listener. He always contributes the most excellent questions. He says, even if you prioritize values over profits, your ecosystem might not. And so how do you balance the needs of your ecosystem and we haven't spoken about uh, large consulting companies, but I have to assume that at this point they're looking over at Zoho. So it's a broad issue potentially. You have to also, the broad ecosystem, you have to select which ecosystem you play in, right? And for example, we have chosen not to play in the VC ecosystem because we felt that our values may not align with theirs. Okay. And they have, you know, exit needs. They have to maximize their return on investment, which we may not be able to deliver using our approach. So we decided not to participate in that ecosystem. So to the next time we choose what playground we play in, right? And, and the truth is, this is a large, you know, this, this world is big. There are opportunities somewhere. There's always an opportunity to live in accordance with our values and match our actions. If we are sitting in the most expensive real estate and we are constantly worried about meeting the next month's uh, uh, payroll, then we may not have the luxury of doing this. But then I question, why do we have to sit in the most expensive real estate in the world? Why do we have to commit to that? Why do we have to accept that type of a burden on our business? Then, so if we can actually so the point I'm making is you can pick your ecosystem. There is a freedom. You don't have to assume the ecosystem as a given to your business. And we can actually create our own ecosystem too. Serving as a center of influence over the various corporate activities, internal and to the extent that you can around it is... Exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's possible. That's doable. Even at a relatively small scale, it's doable. I'll, I'll give you an example. If you're a startup and let's say you are, you want to align yourself and how do you find employees who align to this? Well, go to a place where there's a lot of people who need jobs desperately and there's a lot of that latent talent I'm talking about. Give them an opportunity, train them, and then they are naturally prone to come to your value system. So in that sense, you've created an employee ecosystem that matches your values. And this is this is possible, right? And and so on the other hand, if you say, well, I'm going to hire from the same pool from everybody is hiring from, and I'm going to think, oh, these people are not agreeing with my values. Then I'd say, why don't you go to a place where people are more prone to agree with you? So creating that value-driven ecosystem is something that you think about both inside the company as well as externally surrounding it. External as investors, could be even customers, and definitely employees. All of these, we we actually have more influence than we think we do. That's how I put it. 
We have a, an interesting question uh, from Twitter from Alejo Gonzalez. And he says, you have spoken about uh, the rural revival. How do you define that? And how can communities take advantage of this approach that you're describing? First of all, let me explain where this rural revival idea comes from. And primarily two sources. One, our large urban centers everywhere around the world. That's true in the US, that's true in India, and that's true in Europe, everywhere. They become massively overcrowded, extremely expensive, particularly for new people. It's become very burdensome to live there, cost of living. And Silicon Valley is a prime example. No one who's come in the last five or 10 years could afford a home in Silicon Valley. Not now and not maybe in the next 20 years at the current you know, price of housing and uh, salaries, all of that. So that's not a good, good situation for young people. And then the second part, we have massive depopulation going on in many smaller towns as talent leaves for lack of opportunity there. And so we can put these two. It's obvious that there is a, there is a solution you know, to this problem by matching the two. So you leave these big urban centers and go to these smaller towns that need the jobs, need the income, need the opportunities. It's a kind of marriage made in heaven now. And that is how I think about this problem. And so rural revival is coming from these two sides of this, matching these two sides. There's one side, there is a push out of urban areas and there is a pull factor in rural areas. And this also is actually good for business because a lot of the things we worry about in terms of cost, particularly real estate, which is a prime driver of a lot of things. I mean, not only your rent for office space, but also cost of living for employees. All that is better. And therefore, your business actually has a sounder basis, a financial basis, and it operates from rural areas. And so that is, and, and you'll, you'll find more loyal employees because you're extending opportunity in a place where there are no opportunities or very few opportunities. So all of these go together holistically. That's what I call rural revival. And you yourself did live in Silicon Valley. You founded Zoho in Pleasanton, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley. Tell us about where you live now. I live in a fairly remote village in the southern part of India and not far from the tip, southern tip of India. It's about 50, 60 miles from the southern tip of India. And I actually moved here about a year and a half, well before the pandemic, it's about September or October. 2019, I moved here. And I've been living here since then. And it has been, uh, I mean, now I have a good fiber optic line. That's why I'm able to do this now. But in the beginning, I only had a 4G LTE line and that uh, connection that wasn't very good, but I managed. And so it, is, it has been an adventure. Why? Why did you move from the heart of Silicon Valley to rural India? Silicon Valley is not going to miss me. There is a lot of talent. There is a lot of uh, uh, smart people there. And one person leaving is not going to make a difference to Silicon Valley. But here, I'm vitally needed. In fact, people here tell me often, please never leave us. Please never leave because your presence here means so much to us. So I said, this is, this is an adventure, right? It's, there is the romantic side to this. There is, I'm vitally missed here. 
if I am not here, this whole region, this this place is going to miss me. So, so in a sense, you are you are maximizing the place where you have the most impact. You are you are selecting a place where you can have the most impact, and this should be true for any startup too, right? Why not be in a place where you create maximum impact? Why select a place where you cannot, you know, you are one of you know thousand people contending for space? I'm smiling because I suppose the obvious answer is because it's nice to live in the lap of luxury. And for most entrepreneurs, that's the goal. And obviously for you, you've made some different decisions that seem to be both business and personal decisions. It's true, but I, I'll, I'll offer, it this, offer this, okay? In Silicon Valley, a lot of people take an affluent suburb, uh, maybe lost all their skills or, or Saratoga, places like that, right? These are expensive places in Silicon Valley. The thing that you see often, and you know this, affluent places in America, we often get into this sort of a competitive rat race, right? A little bit. And we have to match the neighbors. And if they have an expensive you know, car on their, on their uh, driveway, well, we cannot have an you know, entry-level car in our driveway. We don't match it, right? And I, you know, we have this experience, right? I once went to a function where people said, yeah, I thought you could afford a better car than this. If I hear this four times, you know, I'm going and changing my car, right? Even if I didn't want to, even if I didn't want to. So there is that aspect and, and there's that whole uh, rat race aspect of it. And we are constantly this treadmill. And those are the things that, you know, wear down on you. When you think about it deeply, at some point, you don't like it, right? A lot of people have that inner feeling. Well, I never actually liked it. I always wanted to live for, in a sense, I wanted to live by my own <laughs> values and I didn't want to live for others' expectations. Like what car I drive is my business and I really don't care to be judged by others on what car I drive, right? So those are the reasons I chose this place, but it's ultimately a personal decision and people who are who don't realize it at first will realize it soon enough that maybe I don't want to be living for other people's expectations of me. On this, relating to this topic, Sandra Lowe says, uh, when Zoho was founded 25 years ago, did you have, did you and the founders, other founders have these values baked in at that time? Or did this approach, this philosophy develop gradually over time? I would say it developed gradually over time. When we, I wouldn't say that when we got started, there was any deep set of convictions about this. And nor, I would argue that you really cannot have that many convictions when you do start like that because they are not backed up by any reality, right? And we had some moral values, but we didn't have yet convictions on how the business should be. And we found them over time. And that's, that's, so it's a kind of a, it's a journey of discovery in a sense, a self-discovery going on here. You must have obviously been very open, receptive, and interested in these values at the start. These are these are core, personal, foundational, psychological uh, constructs. These don't just materialize. Absolutely, Absolutely. and I, I, for example, uh, early on from from the beginning, I had this idea that we shouldn't be worried about prestige constantly because you know a lot of people 
or get trapped by the need for prestige, social prestige, right? Will my actions or my job, uh, if I go to a party, will people respect me? Those kinds of things, right? And that notion was early on, I discarded it. I actually discarded it before we even got started, the company. And I would actually, you know, even in Silicon Valley, I remember I lived in San Jose in a, a Mexican neighborhood. I was working in software. None of my neighbors, nobody was in software. And I lived in this neighborhood and I would go to the local burrito joint. I hang out with the people there and nobody actually worked in the tech. This is in San Jose, in the heart of Silicon Valley. I personally lived in a neighborhood and, and hung out with people who were not into tech or software. So that, again, because I felt, you know, I don't need the prestige of, any, you know, hanging out with the smart people, best people, all of them. You know, I'm, I'm satisfied with my own self. <laughs> so I'll hang out with who I want to hang out with. That's why I thought about it. And the company and the activities obviously are a reflection of that. Yes. And that's how we, the company shaped up that we didn't worry about prestige. And in our early days, we actually shipped products that were highly practical sort of painkiller tools. These weren't like prestigious enterprise software at that time, right? And that would impress the CIO at that time. But we were happy doing this. It paid the bills and it allowed us to build the company. We have uh, a couple of questions from LinkedIn on a uh, more inward looking, inward inside the company um, point of view about employees. And let me ask you both of these because I think they're very connected. Uh, Number one, Vanessa Balderas asks, what is your strategy to motivate employees to participate in these initiatives? And Priya Darshini S. asks, how often do you meet with your employees? Do you encourage daily long meetings? How do you motivate employees? Well, you have to, it has to be by example, not by preaching. So it, People have to be inspired by examples of leadership, examples of their own, what their uh, immediate leadership managers are all doing. And if we cannot do that, we are in a way failing in our, in our mission. So, and you cannot preach this, you cannot force people to act this way. It has to come from within and it has to come from inspiration. And as for how often do I meet, actually I am meeting with employees all the time, of course, now a lot more virtually in the last uh, year or so. But even so, people visit, pay a visit to this place and where I am and employees come and often stay with me here. All of that happens. And uh, meetings, long meetings, that's one thing we try not to do in Zoho. We are not a metric-driven culture. We are not a meeting-driven culture. Because those two really, really, really suck the soul out of a company. You know, meetings are where people go to waste time. And metrics are how we get kind of, you know, uh, that becomes a treadmill, constant treadmill. And that's why you create your job, this constant metric obsessions. So we don't do those two things in Zoho. But of course, metrics make it much easier to manage the company in some respects, or, or do you not find that to be the case? I 
don't know. I mean, I we manage the company, and and uh, let's say that I'm not stressed out, <laughs> and I'm you know I sleep well at night. Only the peacocks keep me awake here. So it's you no, know, it's after 25 years of running this company, right? I'm still fresh, and and I'm still wake up thinking about new challenges, new problems to solve for the customer, new technologies, all of that. So that I feel blessed, right? And and this I take issue with this idea that metrics are make it easier because that's an illusion. See, metrics give us the illusion that we are in control. We have to give up that illusion of control first. In reality, it is the inspiration of the people who work for you that is the health of the business. If people are not passionate and inspired, your business is not actually healthy, even if it makes the numbers. You just made a couple of extremely provocative statements. You said metrics give us the illusion of control, and we have to give up that idea of control, which is the complete antithesis to how hierarchical organizations, which are most businesses, how they're run. Here's the problem with metrics, right? Humans are very good at gaming metrics. You know that. I know that. We know. You know. Once I set some particular metric, let's say I set a metric that. Our traffic has to double every six months or one year or whatever, and traffic on our website. Let's say I set this as a goal, okay? A metric I keep tracking every day. What tends to happen is we will get the traffic. We'll make our numbers. The quality of the traffic will be very poor. Okay. Then you set a goal. Okay, I'm going to set a quality metric on traffic. Then you will find that people are spending massive amounts of money to generate the traffic. Then you are going to say, "I'm going to set set up spending controls." I mean, it goes on and on and on. Each metric needs another metric so that it cannot be gamed. Then yet another metric because then that would be gamed. Humans are very good at gaming metrics. Okay, in fact, a lot of our school and college systems essentially teach us how to game those metrics called grades. <laughs> so we are good at this. We become good at this. So that's why I actually don't have a lot of faith in these metric-driven approaches to management. And the illusion of control is that we are watching these dashboards and everything feels good, and yet internally within people there is a sense of alienation, sense of lack of purpose. None of those things can be measured. None of those things can be measured, and that's where your real challenge of business is: Are your people really inspired? Do they feel a passion to come to work? Or, or log into work. Now I should say, all of these things actually are important. Well, certainly every business leader wants employees to be engaged and happy. The question is, to what sacrifices? I'm using that term sacrifices because that's the conventional way of looking at it. What sacrifices in terms of profitability and giving back to the employees is a business willing to make to balance employee well-being? against uh, corporate profit, ultimately. Again, this is a false dualism, dichotomy we set up. In reality, if the health of a business long-term is the health and well-being of its employees, because if the employees are not doing well and, and happy, the business is not going to be very healthy long-term. It's absolutely, it's obvious, you know, when you look at any periods like 15, 20 years, 25 years in business. So that's why it's important that uh, business leaders think about the holistic well-being of employees and 
Are they feeling stressed out constantly in this rat race, this metrics treadmill we set up? It's something important to think about. And, and this is true also for leadership. You know, we see all too often, leaders burn out. People say, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I'll step aside. Or I'll kick myself upstairs as a chairman and appoint somebody else as CEO. All of this happens. And the reason it happens is they get tired of this approach of managing. Summer Parkerberry has an interesting question and on Twitter. And she says, how have you developed such strength and trust in your convictions over time? And what do you think others in your position should be doing to develop that same perspective on human impact? I have to say, these are not something, things that I was born with or I, I came to the business with on day one. These are things you develop slowly over time. And I often urge people to not develop strong convictions without testing them against reality. Because otherwise, you know, you, you could be living in your own illusions, right? I mean, I can have any conviction I want, but if it's not backed up by reality, then it's worthless. So you have to test against reality. And, and the good news is the reason why our convictions grew stronger is it seems to work. For example, our employees report, consistently report, they are happy. It's backed up by, for example, our attrition statistics, one of the lowest in the industry. It's backed up by the fact that our employees stay with us long term. And similarly, our customer attrition, those numbers are very good. Our customers actually prefer to stay with us long term. All of these tell us we are doing something right. And again, they will tell us, employees will tell us, this company cares about you. Customers will tell us, this company would sacrifice profit in order to serve my interest, take care of me. A lot of that is why, and, and, and that long-term when they stay with us, it lowers our marketing spending to gain that customer. And in a way that pays for itself, but we don't calculate that way. We act in the interest of the customer and then word of mouth spreads. Our marketing costs therefore come down and all that has helped the business. So that then it, it tends to grow your conviction in your model. So one point that, that I just want to emphasize to, to people uh, is that it's it's very evident that for you uh the approach to business you're taking is very rooted in both your philosophical values and ethics and at the same time very rooted in what are the practical impacts on the business is the business doing well uh, how are our employees doing and so forth so those two are coming together in a very practical way and that's why i said you cannot do good without being smart. That's very important because, you know, that sometimes that, again, there is a uh, the, the dualism involved in thinking about this. Because we have to be a business. We have to be profitable. We have to have, take care of customers. We have to take care of employees. We have to pay our employees competitive wages, take care of them well. We have to have products that are competitive in the market and priced correctly. All of these are important. Nobody gets to escape these sort of the gravity, gravitational loss of business, right? Sort of natural loss here. And so within that, then how does your value system operate? That's a key question. And, and our example shows that it is very possible to do it. 
And one key thing is to realize that what other ecosystem that you actually have influence over that you don't think you have influence over. So that's how I put it. Okay, we have another couple of questions from Twitter that I think are, again, uh, kind of linked. Kartik Bala says, do you foresee this same kind of a rural revival mindset possible in America, the de-emphasis on living in the lap of luxury mindset. And Arsalan Khan says, uh, asks, do your values at Zoho encourage people to ignore that rat race? So I think both of these questions are getting to the possibility of, is this possible in the United States? It's actually already happening. You know, there has been a exodus out of Silicon Valley in the last year in the pandemic world. And a lot of people are discovering in our Zoom world we live in right now that the work itself can be done from anywhere. And actually, it's actually even easier to do in America because the basic infrastructure is there pretty much everywhere. Your roads and your systems, the infrastructure is there. And, and, a, and a reasonably good life is possible in most places in America, right? You know that even rural communities have the infrastructure, the roads and the housing is nice, all of that. So it's actually even more possible in America. The key is for employers, companies to invest in these places. And we are finding, in fact, Raju, our chief evangelist can talk about this a lot and he often talks about this. We are finding a lot of small towns neglected and which are very good, good quality of life. Lots of people eager to work and eager to be trained and, and develop the skills. And we are finding these towns. I mean, in Texas and in, in, in all over, we are, we are actually now uh, finding these towns and we are investing. So we ourselves are doing these things in America. And the next maybe a year or two, you will find us maybe in six or seven such locations we are going to do. And we have another question from LinkedIn, Priya, Dar Priya Darshini S. asks, what's going on with Zoho University and where do you anticipate that going? Zoho University has by now become very mainstream in the company in the sense that it's now part of our institutional landscape. It's, it's there. It's part of the background of Zoho. Zoho and Zoho University go together. And we call it Zoho School of Learning. We have rebranded it as Zoho Schools of Learning. And 15% of our workforce is now has come from Zoho School of Learning. And we are going to raise that percentage over time. In fact, I want to go up to 50% of our workforce coming from Zoho School of Learning longer term. So we're growing. And we are also finding that increasingly a lot of students and we are getting this actually uh, this year I'm told that a good number of the students who are coming are dropping out of conventional college after a year or two and joining us in Zoho School of Learning, which is a huge vote of confidence you know, in this model. They're already in college, they're already in a degree program and they're deciding to drop out of it and come to Zoho School of Learning. That's also happening right now. So we are seeing this model now take wings and take flight and we are also seeing that other companies are starting to adopt these models. So, and I believe that this is going to be a big movement in the next 10 years. You will see this. And it's part of this is very much fits with the 
idea of rural revival, all of that, because again, we have to train the talent pool. So I believe employers should take this up as a, a core activity of training uh, staff. That's important. And of course, all of this stems from the fact that employees want to be treated well, want to be respected, want to have opportunities for education and advancement. So what you're describing is completely in accord with human nature. And it's really what every, like I said before, it's what every business leader talks about to some degree. Exactly. And, and, and when you take care of employees, when you invest in them, when you invest in skill creation, talent creation, actually human beings, the way they are, they are going to give back something in return. What do employees give back in return? Their commitment, their loyalty, their love and affection. That's how human beings do it. No, that's, that's natural human instinct. You cannot ask for it, but you receive it. And that's what we find in our business. We haven't spoken about sustainability. Where does sustainability fit into this broader picture? I think of it as look, we are today, we have burdened our planet too much. And the events in the last couple of years in terms of the fires, the, the droughts and the, and the floods and all of these tell us we have, to, we have to be very mindful of what impact we are having on the planet. All our actions, our way of life, our consumption, all of that have to be you know, thought of from that sustainability perspective. And, and the key thing for us is we have to avoid this competitive consumption ideas where we are defining ourselves by our consumption. And that's important because if you don't do this and you ask me, why do you adopt a modest personal lifestyle? And that's because of this issue that I don't want to be trapped in this, be consumed to impress others. And then they consume to impress me. This rat race is going to destroy the planet. So, and, and actually rural areas again, give us an escape from this because in this particular village where I am in, nobody cares what car I drive. Okay? Nobody cares about all of this. Nobody is impressed by any of that. They're impressed by me as a human being, a, a friend, colleague, a, a mentor, all of that here, and not by what kind of car I drive. So it's very important to, you know, the sustainability has to also come from these getting back to nature, closer to nature, reducing our footprint, reducing our consumption, reducing our commute, for example, all of these go, go together. As we finish up, what advice do you have, uh, personal advice do you have for people that are listening and saying, you know, this, this rat race is really tough, but in my job, I can't let it go. You know, I have to do these things. I have all these bills to pay and so forth. But I like what he's saying. What advice do you have for folks? The one advice I give young people is keep in mind prestige is a trap. Chasing prestige is a trap. It traps you in a particular pattern of thinking. So you mentioned, well, you know, I have bills to pay all of that. Rethink all those priorities. Maybe get rid of some of the consumption that created those bills to pay, right? What do I really need? There's this whole, a lot of young people actually these days are embracing the minimalist lifestyle. And I actually am, you know, I've always practiced this where I avoid buying things that I know that I'm going to use for a couple of days and never use again. You know that feeling, right? The, the only time you used it is probably the day you purchased it, right? And that's the kind of consumption a lot of us tend to do. So I avoid that. And 
And so when, when you avoid that, you have fewer bills to pay. Then you have more personal freedom. You can actually do follow your heart. Yeah. So it's that's the one advice I give to young people. And, and, and if you don't get into this trap of prestige, then you have more possibilities in your life. And what advice do you give to business people who are listening to this and who say, you know, I like the fact that they're not metrics driven to that extent. There's a lot of good things. The business has been around for 25 years and it's profitable and it's got all of these employees and it's very, very successful. And I'd like to take those tactics, but I'm not so much interested. You know, I like living in the lap of luxury. I, I, I like living in Silicon Valley, what have you, but I want those tactics. What advice do you have for those folks? This is where actually it's not easy to separate out all these threads. This is a whole tapestry of, you know, I mentioned a lot of threads here. It's difficult to pull apart one thread and just say, I like that. Because there is, there is a, as an example, if you, Silicon Valley location, it's a good example. You are necessarily burdening every new employee with the cost structure inherent to this. And they are necessarily in a rat race because how can they afford a home, even to rent? Even after the pandemic, homes are super expensive, both to rent and to buy in Silicon Valley. So they are going to constantly be worrying about the problem. If you're a business person, if your employee is worrying about this problem, and you don't pay attention to this because it's not my problem, it's their problem, well, it becomes your problem. Because they are going to constantly chase, you know, is somebody else going to pay me higher? Because I have to pay these bills, right? So then you cannot choose a location like that and then later complain that, you know, nobody gives me loyalty. Well, ask, I'll ask the business person, what have you done to earn the loyalty? You know? So that is the, that's, so it, it's all linked together. You know, it's, it's a, a single woven fabric. You cannot separate the threads here. So you can't just pick and choose the pieces you like or that are convenient for you at the moment. Exactly. And you know, you can do that, but you may get very suboptimal results. Okay. And with that, unfortunately, we are out of time. I would like to thank Sridhar Vembu, the co-founder and CEO of Zoho for taking your time to speak with us today. Sridhar, it's great to have you back and thank you again. Thank you, Michael, and namaste. Thank you. Everybody, thank you for watching, especially those folks who asked the great questions and left such great comments on LinkedIn and Twitter. Before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so you can get our newsletter. And tell your friends too, please. We have great shows coming up. We'll see you again next time. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.